and you know somehow an idea that there was going to be this miraculous uh like a explosion i was going to disappear into a pink cloud or something and i'd never know pain again um which is not uncommon but when i started to practice it was it was fundamentally transforming um almost immediately i always have found uh, i i don't have great biodynamics i found that the actual physical sitting as i was in quite painful but it was so incredibly nourishing it just it was like it was like i just this is what i have to do this is the answer this is it kim hoben hansen began formal zen practice in 1995 and the following year he became a student of chosen bay's roshi and hogan bay's roshi in 2009, Hoban completed Sangakai training, a three-year program for lay Zen students designed to cultivate different aspects of Sangha service. He was made a Dharma heir by Chosen Bay's Roshi and Hogan Bay's Roshi in 2015. Hoban is the founding teacher of the North Shore Zendo in Vancouver, Canada. And in addition to leading traditional retreats, Hoban has taught Zen Buddhism in specialized communities like lawyers and youth. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are eligible for a free month of training. To learn more, visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. Hoben, you began practice in 1995. Uh, you're in Vancouver, I'm guessing, at this time. Uh, but you've connected with these uh, teachers down in Oregon. And I'm wondering how you, that connection was made and, and what brought you really to the practice in the first place. Hmm. It's, a, it's a good question to reflect on. I, I actually think uh, my I first became aware of Zen in a in a meaningful way um, when I was 15 years old, and I was hitchhiking across Canada, away from home without leave, so to speak. And um, I got a ride outside Sault Ste. Marie, and uh, and in the back seat of the car when I got in was a copy of Dharma Bombs, and I read that book, and it really went through me like a bolt of electricity, most real way. And I, I read a lot kind of thought about various things i studied uh, academically uh, when i was in university japanese culture and buddhism but i really started to practice in 95 ultimately i, I became a tax litigator uh you know a nail a nail eating nail chewing tax litigator and i was going along kind of full speed in my practice with my life and in 1995 i came up against a, a real block all of a sudden it was I had this uh, experience where I thought I was going mad, that there was a blackness that was going to sweep over me in about six months' time. It was like something palpable I could feel. And it was uh, disturbing enough to me that I, I actually left my law firm, uh, took a six-month sabbatical, and went down to the East Coast uh, 
um, to hang out with some back to land friends um, from the old days down there. Took my family with me. And at the end of that sabbatical, uh, my wife brought home a magazine one day and I was leafing through it. And uh, back of the magazine, there was a list of spas that you could go to in North America. And the, the last of these spas, tagged on, I guess, as a joke, maybe, was Zen Mountain Monastery. And so I realized I, I could do this. I, could, I was kind of close. I could go. So I did. I just got on a bus. I went down. Uh, I spent uh, two weeks there, met Dido, a powerful, powerful teacher whose teaching still resonates with me. And I, it was like giving a thirsty man a glass of water. And at the end of that two-week period, I, I was pondering, how do I continue to train? And I talked to um, one of the seniors there. And he suggested I contact uh, Chosen, uh, Jan Chosen Bays, who was um, teaching out in Oregon. And when I got back to Canada, I, I kind of mm, tried sitting with some local groups around Vancouver and then ultimately wrote Chosen a letter in January. Amazing when I think about it now, but I just wrote her a letter and asked me if she would take me on as her student and went down and sat my first session with her just a few weeks later. Wow. And what was it about her that made you decide that this was your teacher? Um, I have never doubted Chosen. And so at, at a, uh, I have to say now Hogan, uh, is, Hogan Roshi is probably my primary teacher. We're kind of, uh, he's put on his rubber boots and waded into this mess, which is, uh, you know, Kim <laughs> Hogan Hansen and, and is not, not afraid to, to push whatever buttons he can find uh, along the way, which is wonderful. Um, but I've never doubted Chosen, and she, she always had a very gentle um, way about her. But it was, it was really this, there was something about her right from the time I met her where it was just this complete confidence in her clarity. And, I mean, her kindness always shone through, but it was really this confidence in her clarity. And so you began this journey, uh, 1996, with, with Chosen, and you would just go down for Sashin? How often? And how did you, did you sit by yourself? Did you sit with others? Or how did you maintain this, this relationship over that distance? Um, I did for uh, my relationship uh, with Great Zen Monastery has been primarily uh, a Sashin practice. Uh, so in 96, I initially started, um, I asked Chosen what the minimum uh, number of sessions she would recommend to sit. And she said, well, you should sit at least two a year if you can, if your life circumstances permit it. And so I started very quickly sitting four a year because that's at the time what was offered by way of full-time session. And then in Vancouver, um, I practiced... Uh, a lot with the mountain rains and community group and the guiding teacher there is Norman Fisher. So I'd sit weekend retreats with Norman when he was up or with Reb Anderson. And, uh, early on, um, uh, chosen would also come up and, and, uh, lead weekend retreats there. Um, so that, I guess I've sat about four, four session a year until the last few years when I've, uh, increased uh, the number of session. I spent a couple of periods of residency, down at uh, Great Vow, uh, once when it was first uh, initially when it was first founded to help out, and then uh, more recently, I think in 2014, I spent a period down there 
teaching two months or uh, three months in the summer, um, going back and forth between Great Vow and, and North Vancouver. Now, did you continue to practice as a lawyer through this time? I did. Initially, when I when I started to practice, um, I was hmm, I was a bit of a junkyard dog uh, as a lawyer. Ian, um, I was uh, I did um, uh, tax litigators. I see. I did a lot of commercial crime. I acted for a lot of people who had very very messy problems that needed to be washed up, and I had. Uh, learned to be very aggressive um, as a style, a bit of a bully, quite frankly. Just my whole manner in court was was quite bullying. And I initially thought I was going to have to stop practicing law as I started to uh, be more involved in the practice. And I, I practiced, continued at my firm for another four years, I guess, and then took a two-year uh, sabbatical. Um, but I and then started to practice on my own just because it permitted me the time to uh, devote myself to Zen practice. I could make enough money to support my family um, conjunction with my wife and um, at the same time to have the time to uh, devote to practice. But I had to, I did learn I had to remake myself as a lawyer and it was fine. Um, I realized that no, there are other ways to, uh, to do a cross-examination. Um, uh, there were some clients I had that I would refer out because they were uh, pretty determined. They wanted somebody who was um, the way I used to be. Um, so there was a, a change that took place, but I continued practicing law until I guess about a year ago, two years ago, something like that. I, I ramped off completely. I do pro bono work now, but I, I don't uh, I don't have a fee-paying practice at all. I don't go to court anymore either. You know, it's such an interesting story in the sense of as we move through this world, right, and we, God forbid we ever have to go to court, you know, the, the image that I think, well, that I have and that I think a lot of people have is that, you know, you want this, you want this lawyer that is just going to be so aggressive, right? It's going to beat up the other people for you. But then as a human being, as the person who is that, um, is that lawyer, um, and you start to encounter these questions about, you know, who am I? What is this? What does this mean? It's like, uh, maybe this isn't what is really best for society. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, I don't really know where the question is. It's, it's, for me, it's more kind of like, what do you think people are looking for in that in that lawyer who's just ready to be the the bully for us and then and for the lawyers who are willing to do it well that's uh that's very interesting i think sometimes um self-righteousness cloaks itself in justice um <laughs> <laughs> it does for me anyway <laughs> uh, I mean, it's true, true for all of us yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh-huh and so um people uh, sometimes they feel very aggrieved, you know, in a per very personal way by what happened. And they, they want, it's unfortunate, a human characteristic, I think, to evolve. It's just a sense sometimes of wanting to punish or get your own back. And you have to, I, I realize you, you have to educate um, the people you're working with that that's just not a very effective strategy for resolving a conflict. Um, and you, you do, as a lawyer, there's, as a litigator, you need to be strong. 
Um, you need to be clear and you need to be strong. Um, but quite frankly, I came to realize over time that bullying works sometimes with some people, but it usually ends up creating far more harm for everybody that's involved in the process than, um, than being creative in uh, resolving uh, what the conflict might be in terms of coming to a solution that works for everybody uh, in the thing and being strong when you had to be strong because sometimes you're dealing with somebody who's very aggressive on the other side. So when you're looking at the skillful means within Buddhism, is this, you know, when you started to really encounter the Dharma, how did that change you as a lawyer? Well, um, I think I spoke to that a little bit. How it changed me was the thought process was the same, but the modality in terms of approaching problems was quite different in that I shifted from this um, aspiration to win. And I, I, quite frankly, it was the winning was a lot of it about me. I wanted to win, and my client was winning was just uh, a way of me winning. And seeing that was, was very helpful. And shifting from that to seeing this as uh, a disharmony, I guess, a conflict that had arisen, and how to, using whatever tools might be available to resolve this, uh, this disharmony, this problem. Um, and, you know, it might be going to court. Uh, often as not, I, I would try to avoid going to court to, uh, you know, to see if there was some way that you could bridge whatever um, the perspective Revenue Canada might have or the prosecutor might have and, and my client's perspective. You know, the way that you just said that, like the, you know, your client winning was really about you winning. I just had a recent experience that was... I, uh, somebody was given a goodbye present here at the Zen Center and I had recommended this present <laughs> and I wanted to make sure that that person who was getting it knew that it was me, you know, that recommended. And it was, it was such a fascinating thing to look at because, you know, it's really just a, a goodbye present, but so much, I think of what we call help, like when we're trying to help people, it really is about the the nurturance of the ego <laughs> and the reinforcement of the ego in a way we call it help, but actually it's something else. Yeah. The, uh, I think it was Thoreau who said, if I knew, if I knew somebody was coming uh, to my house with the express purpose of helping me, I'd take to my heels as if the devil himself was after me. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so now you, you've led retreats, uh, like traditional Zen retreats, but you've also uh, led these specialized retreats for, for lawyers, you've, you've led them for seniors. And I'm just curious about what it's like to, to talk to these, these uh, people who, who are asked to be kind of these sort of legal warriors for us, but must be, you know, facing real questions about what that means. So I've led two, with Chosen, led two weekend retreats for lawyers. And for, I guess, two years, I ran a weekly lawyers group under the auspices of the local bar association. People go to law school because they have an aspiration to help other people. Hmm. And the law is, you know, it's really to end suffering as they see it. And the law is a medium for doing that. Mm -hmm. And 
very often lawyers come to Dharma practice because of feeling, in my experience, feeling conflicted between this compassionate uh, aspiration that they have to help others and the reality of the messiness of, of the actual uh, practice of, of law. It often seems like there's a disproportionate number of lawyers in practice um, because of that. Um, the, I, I think it's a, a gift uh, to lawyers because it really changes your, your focus from this uh, winning to, to uh, problem solving or harmonizing way of going at it. And also just in terms of allowing people to, to self-nurture in terms of dealing with their own uh, emotional challenges that uh, arise, inevitably arise in, in the practice of law. There's so many depressed lawyers, um, so many people leaving the practice because of that. Yeah, I, I also work as a, as a clergy, as a Unitarian Universalist minister, and uh, the rates of alcoholism for lawyers and ministers and police uh, is super high. Uh, and I think it, part of it is the role that we're we're asked to play that sometimes feels very conflicted. You know, <laughs> we end up instead of turning to the Dharma, we turn to uh, you know alcohol or drugs uh, because of the depression that comes on us. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. Yeah, people people seeking painkillers one way or another. Maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's TV, maybe it's, you know, <laughs> but we have all these unwholesome painkillers that work for a little while, but tend to snap up and bite you on the backside uh, eventually. Now, Hoban, you, you founded North Shore in, in 2006, is that correct, in Vancouver? It was in 2006, yeah. Oh, yeah, and so why did you... Uh, decide to to create the sangha um, instead of just sitting, continuing to sit with Norma Fisher and, and that group. I was um, I was I've always been kind of a reluctant teacher, Ian. But my my own teacher uh, Hogan uh, Bayes Roshi had kind of uh, stepped in and and was responsible for my training <laughs> at the time and he thought that this would be an important aspect of my training <laughs> to do yeah, that no, it and is. it was and part of it was i was very uh excited to offer their dharma as i came to see it. norman is norman has been one of the most uh, potent uh forces in my own practice life i'm so grateful for that man he's this wise gentle man um but i really wanted to offer the dharma as it was um, received by me um, through Chosen and Hogan and Great Bows and Monastery to offer it, um, and it wasn't wasn't being offered that way in Vancouver at the time. So I, I there was a, another. I had a very good friend at the time, Steve Bocado Holy, uh, who who said, um, you know, yeah, we sh- we can do this. So we started, and we I had an in home office at the time. I was practicing law out of my home, and so I would uh, uh, once a week we would clear. Uh, most of the office furniture out of there, put some cushions around, and we started sitting in my office. And that was the beginning of it. Was there a particular quality that you were interested in beyond just the gratitude of of having had the Dharma shared with you? Um, like, what was the the teaching that you that you felt was, you know, that you were hoping to express? There has always been 
through Hogan and Chosen, there has always been an emphasis on on realization, and the mm. uh, and of course it has to manifest in you know meticulous attention to practice. But it was what I really wanted to offer people was I wanted to offer uh, people the opportunity to sit a lot, and so we we mm-hmm. sit for you know people come and they sit for two hours. That's our kind of standard uh, block, and to to sit retreat to offer a session practice which has been a, such a fundamentally important part of my own practice i i have difficulty um envisaging how it would be to actually uh teach without uh, well and and to affect change on a deep level without sitting session that's just the model i've grown up in and that's really what i what I wanted to to offer my own practice, as I uh, uh, sometimes say, I really have become a bit of a one-trick pony in that I I do koan practice with Hogan and Chosen, but my own practice is primarily uh, Shikantaza. Um, we do, you know, we offer a full a full moon meta practice, either Tonglen or Meta, and other practices. Um, Certainly, oh, really? yeah, Interesting. yeah, certainly a great. Well, chosen has always been. You know, when I started training, uh, quite frankly, it was funny. Yeah, and I, I was, uh, I think I was four years in practice before I didn't realize that voice dialogue wasn't a traditional Zen practice. You know, <laughs> 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 you know, <laughs> uh, she's uh, both she and Hogan have always been very bold about bringing in, infusing um, the traditional practices with other practices, and um, we've tried to carry on that tradition. So you you do actually sit quite a lot of retreat. Um, before we got on the call, you were telling me you sit or you you you've been sitting at least a week every month, one session a month. Uh, but recently, you've started sitting almost. Uh, you've been sitting two session, I think, for the last three months. And I'm wondering, I guess in part, uh, how you balance that with your family life. But also, you know, I think a lot of people come to the practice and there's this lingering preoccupation that they have, which is, oh my God, I'm going to find out something about myself and I'm going to have to, you know, give everything up or, <laughs> you know, these um, these stories that we have when we come in. But you actually do practice quite a lot. And yeah, I'm just wondering about practice, life balance. You're, you're not a monastic um, you do live in the world and and I'm just just curious about how you balance all that. I started really having to look at this question of balance when I first started practicing. And um I remember in ninety-five uh, one of the other reasons I thought I'd have to leave the practice of law was I couldn't see how I could be a full time lawyer going full pull at what I was doing and and also uh be a dedicated practitioner. And I was I was pretty uh, ardent, pretty intense. It, I remember one uh, an interview I once had with Chosen, where, we, where she made me promise I would not ordain. <laughs> and just, oh, really? Yeah, just at the at the time, because and it was a really skillful thing where she just saw this guy who was so greedy, I guess, for the Dharma in some ways. And she said, you, you know, she was. We've been working. You know, I had three young daughters at the time and a wife, and and. And so it was, she was just emphasizing, you, you, you don't need to do that. And so what happened was I ended up looking at my practice and realized, no, there are different ways I can, I can back off, 
Uh, it may mean that I have to leave this partnership um, that I was in, and ultimately I did that and started to practice uh, law on my own out of my home, and then I would take an office downtown to use, uh, you know, as a trial room if I had a trial. Um, and but I realized that it was possible. I just had to uh, put the Dharma first in my life, and then um, everything else seemed to fall with that. I've always had a. My family has been very, very supportive. I've been blessed with um, my kids have been supportive. My my bride, um, Dwellen, has been incredibly supportive. Um, and I think they have realized early on how important it was to me. And I, I think also, uh, as with families, they start to see the changes as they saw this kind of very aggressive, angry guy go, start to change. They realized, well, you know, we're kind of the beneficiaries of this in some way. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, now, um, uh, the Sangha is, we have very small, uh, very warm, ardent Sangha. And when I go away, uh, as you're saying, I, the last few months I've been sitting uh, two sessions a month just to uh, clarify um, some stuff that I've uh, been working on. And the, the, the Sangha is wonderful at stepping up and continuing when I'm not there. And I've, I've really, I, I don't know about yourself, Ian, but for me, I, I would have a very difficult time teaching if I wasn't sitting regular session. And I, I find when I'm not sitting session, my talks have a, a the way I, the way I sometimes express it is I'm talking about it instead of talking from it. Um, and that's, so session is, is really fundamentally important to me. It, it feels like that is what provides the balance. It's by it's by practicing deeply like that it provides everything else seems to flow from that. And so you called yourself a, a reluctant teacher. And even in our first email exchange, you were like, really? <laughs> um and I I'm curious to know how, you know, the the practice of guiding students now has impacted your your practice. Oh, what a lovely question. Um, it's broken my heart open in truth. Mm. When I, when I started, uh, teaching, so I, I really started very shortly after 2006 because I was up here by myself, Hogan and chosen authorized me to have interview with teacher, uh, with students and to give talks, um, even before I was a Dharma holder. And it, it became, uh, it, it really just rose up this mind of compassion, like meeting and people are so genuinely meeting you and sharing with you where they're caught themselves. Um, it was, it was a really a life altering thing for me. Uh, and I see a large part of what I do with the Sangha, there's teaching, um, but there's also this role that people invite me into their life as I started out life as a as a, in a Lutheran church, and I, I, in some ways, I'm a pastor. I don't know if that makes sense yeah. to you, but really and truly, people, yeah. people, you know, I, I, a number of times, you know, somebody is dying, and so you you step into that role, and and you know, meeting people wherever they might be, or people are having different challenges in their life, and helping them to work using the tools of the Dharma, um, 
you know, in terms of uh, meeting those challenges. The great search for intimacy, I think, for so many of us, right, is to be seen and to be to be in relationship. And, you know, aside from the sexual relationship that, that some of us have with a partner, the other relationship is this, you know, this spiritual one. There's an opportunity to become incredibly vulnerable. Mm-hmm. It's something that we really seek and yet is so, we're not sure if we can really share it until you find someone you can trust. Yeah, that's right. This this it's a, a radical intimacy it really is when you and you're asking when you when you do when you're working with somebody for me you're really asking them to strip everything away and just to to mm-hmm. to meet in this very intimate way um and that was when i said i was a reluctant teacher it was my concern i'm not a psychologist i'm not you know um the it was a concern about about the possibility of harming somebody's uh, spiritual development just from a lack of skill you, you know that famous story about hakuin and the uh, the grasshopper where he he was watching this grasshopper one day emerging from its you call it a pupa case and the thing was almost free and and but it had one leg that was stuck a little bit and he ever so gently just reached down with a blade of grass and freed the leg from the pupa case, you know, in the most kind-hearted way. And it was crippled. And that was mm. a story that it, uh, when I was first starting teaching, I, I probably uh, talked to Hogan Roshi about that story 10 times. <laughs> so, yeah, very meaningful for me. Yeah, I guess that is the great, you know, people are coming to you with their their heart in their hands, you know, mm-hmm. many of them are probably dealing with the same darkness that you, you were experiencing. Yeah. I think it's true. Everybody, everybody has that darkness and it's, and there's these places that can be so difficult to go to, you know, places that, you know, these locked dark places that you can be years in practice before you're you're really able to to open that door um that always surprises me myself with both with my own practice and with others what do you think gave you the faith that that this was going to be something that worked for you you know i don't know the answer to that and i don't know it's an intellectual answer but what i I was always very inspired by my reading of Zen Buddhism, but you know, I I, I started life kind of reading D.T. Suzuki and and you know some high idea that there was going to be this miraculous uh, like a explosion. I was going to disappear into a pink cloud or something, and I'd never know pain right. again, um, yeah. <laughs> which is not uncommon. But yeah, I have to say, when I went to Zen Mountain Monastery, it was. It was fundamentally transforming um, almost immediately. There was uh-huh. something about the practice, and I, I, I found I always have found uh, I, I don't have great biodynamics. I found that the actual physical sitting as I was in quite painful, but it was mm-hmm. so incredibly nourishing. It just it was like it was like I just this is what I have to do. This is the answer. This is it. 
Mm. And then when you when I started to practice, it was um, it was the changes that that arose from the practice. The the uh, I would have had a hard time articulating. And like most people, you don't see it so much yourself initially as others seeing it, but it 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 really was this just how uh, this experience of being in the world um, uh, started to change pretty quickly um, from Zazen. I've been um, trying to offer uh, some of the tools of the Dharma to kids. So a few years ago, I ran a program at a youth center uh, on in North Vancouver on the North Shore here. And it was a very um, rewarding, very inspiring uh, program seeing these sometimes very troubled kids that would uh, engage the Dharma. And very often they would try it for a while, try it, oh, it didn't work, fall away. Um, but some of them continued. And then uh, more recently, we've been trying in the Sangha, uh, running this program we call Peter Pan Zen for like little kids. And it's it's so much fun. Like we'll have 20, <laughs> 25 kids in the Zendo and trying to, you know, trying to, and and uh you know do these different meditations and so beautiful to see these little tiny kids that are like six years old sitting there turning themselves into a mountain or you know doing these you know doing kinhin and um so i'm i have uh i tried to raise my own kids um using the principles of the dharma um and i i have uh it's something i want to continue it's something i think as teachers it's a wonderful thing if we can uh offer that to kids when they're young. And why do you think that in particular? Uh, because I, th what I saw with my own kids is that they are so open to that. I, uh, I remember um, my daughter uh, going to a piano recital and I kind of, when she was little, uh, she, she was seven at the time I taught her to, kids are so receptive. They can, you know, if you say, find your hara, they, you know, mm -hmm. your, you know, this uh, chakra, whatever you want to call this hara in your lower abdomen, they can find that, you know, that's, it's something, oh, it's not like, like, what are you talking about? Oh yeah, yeah, I, I can kind of get that. I can move from there. I can breathe from there. And so I taught them, you know, taught my kids when they were young, you know, simple breath meditation and meta meditation. And she was so nervous. Like she was just, the anxiety was palpable. You could have, you could have cut the air with a knife and just spoke to her about, you know, you, you, you can, you know how to breathe, how to find your heart. And it was so interesting just seeing her anxiety drop away. And mm -hmm. just, it's, you know, that feeling when you actually, when you're with somebody and you can offer them the tools of the Dharma and, and just feeling, feeling that shift that takes place where they realize that, oh, this is so nourishing. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Hoban encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting northshorezen.org. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quanam Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. 
To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week.